So this morning, I wanted to take a few minutes and talk to you about something. I actually haven't ministered on this subject specifically in about three years. And I really wanted to take a look at it today. And it's the idea of the things that we do are as a result of who we are. And some of you guys are thinking, well, that's just kind of common sense. You guys are thinking that's just, I mean, that makes sense. You do what you are. But I don't think, particularly as Christians, many of us have really grabbed a hold of what that means to us, particularly as Christians. So before uh, we get ready to dive more into the Word this morning, let's take a few moments to pray, and then we're going to really start digging into really who you are. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. We thank you for who you are. This morning, Father, I pray that our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be opened to receive what you have for us, that your Word would accomplish its purpose in our lives, Father, that it would produce fruit. And Father, I know that you are watching over your Word, ready to perform it in our lives. So we come before you this morning with an expectation of growth, change, and revelation. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know that if you ask somebody who they are or what they are, most people will identify what they are based on what they do. So if you were to come up and ask me, hey, you know, what are you? I'd say, well, I'm a pastor. Or I might say, I'm a network engineer because that's what I do when I'm not here. I'm an IT guy, the IT nerd. Praise God. But uh, I, that's what I would say. Somebody asks, what are you? I would say, I'm a pastor. And many times we'll look at people's last names. And people's last names are so often, actually, a lot of old surnames, old last names come from what they actually were, right? You're the last name Farmer. Anybody want to guess where that came from? Last name was Smith or Carpenter. Any of those names like that? Anybody ever known someone with the last name of Baker? Guess what one of their great-great-grandparents did? <laughs> See, that, and that's actually why I chose the, the picture of the blacksmith this morning up here, because that's actually, if you were to ask that guy what he is, he would say he's a smith. And what, they, what he was actually became so much a part of his identity, became his, the, their last name. At some point, people's last name came from that. Because that's what they did. People identified themselves by what they did. But this morning, I want to flip that a little bit. And so we stop identifying ourselves by the things that we do, but instead identify ourselves by the things that we are. Because the truth is, there's very few things that identify you by what you are. In today's society, the two big ones that I can think of is your, your, uh, your race and your gender identify you by what you are, not what you do, right? You know, you're, you're not a man because of the things you do. You're a man because of how you were born. It's what you are, even though... Some people are trying really hard right now to get that changed. But the reality is, is that you're a man or a woman because that's what you are. You're black, white, or Asian, or Mexican because that's what you are. You were born that way, so you're identified as that because it's what you are. It's not what you do. But there are very few things that identify us in that way. Everything else, we're identified by, by what we do. You know, there's been instances in history where that wasn't actually always the case, particularly in Scottish clans. The, the, the surname of the people in a clan wasn't based on blood relations, but it was based on where they lived, what territory they were in, and what clan they were in. So they, they were named by what they were, not what they did, but what they were. If they were born in this area, they were part of this clan. And I believe as Christians, this is the kind of mindset that we have to start taking on in our lives. We have to understand that our identity is not based on our actions, 
but our identity is based on what has been accomplished inside of us already. Our identity is defined not by our actions, but the reality is, is our actions should be defined by our identity. As Christians, we're not righteous because we act righteous. If you thought that that's how the, your, your way to righteousness was by acting righteous, I can give you a, a, a quick uh, newsflash. That's not how it works. You can't become righteous by acting righteous. You become righteous because of what God has accomplished inside of you. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at that moment you become Christ, uh, righteous. And at that moment, you should start behaving righteous because that's who you are on the inside. You're no longer who you used to be. Paul, one of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians is from Paul. It's 1 Corinthians 6.11. He said, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And if you go back and read the couple verses before that, he begins talking about um, uh, some of them were liars and swindlers and drunkards and homosexuals and all these things, his long, long laundry list of sins. And it's obvious that from the Scripture that they're still doing some of those things. And he says, not that this is what you are. He says, that's what you were. That's what you used to be. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made brand new. So quit acting like who you were and start acting like who you are right now. They were changed. They were transformed. And that transformation should be what is driving the very actions that they were living their life out of. That's the, the whole point behind James when he came out and said, You show me your faith, or you said, You show me your faith without action, I'll show you my faith by my actions. James was never trying to tell you when he said faith without works is dead. He wasn't trying to say that without works you're unsaved or without works you're unrighteous. What he was trying to say is if you're really saved, there should be some sort of evidence. There should be some sort of driving change in your life. The way that you act, the way that you live your life should change. There should be something different going on. And that's why he said, you show me your faith without action, I'll show you my faith by my actions. Not that he was earning, or, or earning his faith or his righteousness, but because he was made brand new, it changed him and how he lived his life. As Christians, it is so important that we understand who we are so that we can begin to live and behave accordingly. Not as those who are trying to attain righteousness or holiness, but as those who are already righteous and holy. Because when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at that moment in time, it's not just a commitment on your part. You're not just saying, I'm going to do these things. That's not the whole of it. The reality is, is when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, a miracle takes place at that moment. The old spirit that was inside of you is removed. You have a new spirit placed inside of you. You are made brand new. The old is dead, new has come. And as a result, that should be evident in your life. The first scripture that I want to look at is Matthew 4, 1 through 10. And it says, When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Do you know that one of the most effective attacks of the enemy that he will use against you is to begin to question who you are? Now, if the devil uses this type of attack against Jesus, how many of you know he's going to use it on you? If he thought it was effective enough to take on Jesus, he's, he thinks it's effective enough to take on you, to make an impact in your life. And the truth is, every single attack of the enemy is actually of this nature. Every single attack of the enemy ultimately boils down to, who are you? If he can get you to question and doubt who you are, then he's going to have a much easier time of getting you to do what he wants you to do. If he can get you to question what has happened inside of you, if he can get you to question and think, you know what, maybe I'm I'm not saved, or maybe I'm, I'm not really righteous, or maybe I'm not actually loved by God, then he can get you to do things that you would never do otherwise. And I want you to know that whatever the devil wants you to do is always at odds with what God wants for you. You see, the first thing that the devil went to Jesus when he was lost in the, in the wilderness here, when he's out in the wilderness, the first thing Jesus did was begin to question his identity. He asked him who you are, right? So that's where he started. First thing he says, if you are the Son of God. That's his question. If you are the Son of God. How many of you know the devil knew that he was the Son of God? The devil wasn't confused. The devil wasn't like, maybe I should test this guy and find out if this is him or if there's another one coming. The devil knew what was going on. He knew that he was the Son of God. The devil wasn't trying to confirm something in his own heart. He was trying to get Jesus to doubt that he was who he said he was. He wanted Jesus to doubt who he was. Because if the devil could have got Jesus to doubt who he was, he could have began to manipulate him. If if Jesus would have started going, man, I really feel like I'm the Son of God. I mean, I'm looking at the prophecies. They seem to be panning out, you know. God's speaking to me. I'm one with the Father. But maybe I'm just making this up. Maybe I, I mean, if he could have begun to get Jesus to doubt, we'd be living in an entirely different world today. Then the next thing the devil does is what the devil's going to do to you all the time. He's going to offer you something that you already have. He says, he goes, and the next part is uh, he offers Jesus provision in the kingdom. The devil said to him, uh, if you're the son of God, where is that? If you're this, uh, it took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world for three times. He said, if you are the son of God. And then finally he says, well, I'll tell you what, if you worship me, I'm going to give you all this stuff. You go out there and look, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory says, he says, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's already his stuff. It's already his The devil was offering him something that he already had because he's trying to make him believe he's somebody that he's not. And the devil will do that to you because the devil's going to come on and say, hey, if you just go and and, and meet this girl and do these things, it's going to make you happy. If you just find this, if you just get this next job, you're finally going to be fulfilled. If you just get that raise, finally, everything's going to be all right. 
So he begins to try to tempt you into doing things that, that aren't what God wants for your life, but it's what somebody else wants. But the thing is, is we don't realize that we already have those things. Our fulfillment doesn't come from what we have or the job we have or the amount of money we have or the person we're dating or the car that we have. Our fulfillment comes from Jesus Christ. Our contentment comes from Jesus Christ. Our wholeness comes from Jesus Christ. The devil is going to continue to offer you stuff that you already have. And if you don't know who you are, you're going to be put off path. If you can't say to him, but, but I already have those things, devil. I mean, you're, you're offering me something that I, I already have. I don't need what you're offering. We can't be taken off course if we know who we are. And Jesus, though, was sure of who he was. And he answers the devil with Scripture every time. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord God and only him. He says it again. Again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. And he says again, it is written, man shall not be led by, be fed by, or live by bread alone. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this kind of makes some lights go off in my head. When the devil comes knocking, trying to tell you that you're someone that you're not, how do you suppose you should answer? With the Word of God, with the Scripture. If the devil comes to condemn you, say, therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. If the devil comes to tell you that you are a coward, you can say no. For the Lord has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of sound mind. If he comes and says that you are weak or he questions your ability to accomplish something, you say, no, I, am, and I, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If he says that you're not savable or that he questions your salvation, you can say, for by grace I have been saved through faith. And if he comes to you and says that you're unloved or unlovable, you can remind him, God's loved me so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for me. You begin to speak the scriptures back to an enemy who begins to question who you are. Because those are the things you are. When he says that you're a coward, you can say, no, I'm, I'm strong. I don't have fear. I'm not, I don't have, because that's who you are in Christ. You can say that I am strong in Christ. And it's not even being boastful. It's just stating the reality. It's only boastful if you, are those, if you believe you're those things in your own strength, but you're not. It's in His strength and what He's accomplished inside of you. He's changed who you are on the inside. And the enemy will continue to tell you lies, to question who you are, but the Word of God will tell you indefinitely, indefinitely who you are, definitively who you are. And there's no question, there's no doubt, His Word will tell you those things. Because God's Word is truth. And it's truth is not like today's truth where everybody can have their own subjective truth because that's just ridiculous to me. The whole point of truth is that it's objective. There is only one truth. We all can't have our own truths. And the truth is the Word of God. Amen? And then in Acts 19, uh, 13 through 16, it says, Then some of the itinerant Jew Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And I was reading about this, and this, 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 this account is not the only time that this happened. Um, Ephesus was kind of renowned for its mystical arts and all those things at the time. It was kind of a melting pot like much of those areas. And, and uh, there, there was 
uh, many of the magical papyri, papyri, what is that? The papyrus scripts, anyone know how to say that? Papyri? Anyway, many of those, those pieces of paper, they made it, they've, they've lasted, they've gone on, gone on to, to and, and we see them in even like non, non, non-biblical accounts where they're saying, I adjure thee by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. Somebody in Ephesus was using the name of Jesus in their magic. This wasn't an uncommon account, but they, they were missing something. They were trying to claim an identity that wasn't theirs. And the reality is, is that Jewish priests, they were no stranger to casting out demons. This is what uh, uh, Jesus said in Luke eleven nineteen: If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So therefore, the Jewish priests were casting out demons. That was uh, not uncommon for them to do so. But what wasn't common in this account is they were calling on the name of Jesus to do so, except for they had no part in the name. They had no relationship with Jesus, therefore they had no right to his name, and they actually kind of knew that because they mentioned Paul. They're like, hey, the Jesus that Paul knows, I I adjure you by, by him. And the thing that we can take from this is that imitating a Christian, i.e. being a good person, is not enough. Just being a good person is not enough. The devil, in this case, the, the demons that were inside him, they had the power to overpower them because they weren't grounded in their identity in Christ. He, said, he says, Paul, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? You know, I remember when I was first going to be a, a, a becoming a pastor, that was one of the things that like, would actually run through my head. What if I'm, I'm up here and I'm standing against something, I'm praying, and the, and the devil asked me those questions, and, and uh, I was telling my pastor about it. I said, you know, what if that's what they say? Like, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but, but who are you? And, and he actually encouraged me. He said, they know who you are. And I began to realize that if they begin to, to ask me, you know, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? How would I respond to that? And I began to think about it. I would respond, I'm a child of the Most High God. I'm beloved of God. I am strong in Him. I am righteous in Him. And when you begin to answer with the Word of God, right? Jesus told us how to do that not too long ago when He was tempted. You answer with the Word of God, you begin to realize that your identity is grounded in Him. The question is going to be asked of you, every single one of you in this room, the question is going to be asked of you, who are you? And you don't want to answer by the things that you do. Because that's not enough. You can live the perfect life. You can be the, the best person, help little old ladies across the street every single day of your life, and you still won't be good enough. It won't be enough. Because that's just something you do. The question is, who are you? And you can reply, I am strong. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am righteous. I am holy. I am more than a conqueror. I am an overcomer. I am clean. You can respond to these things, not because of what you do, because the reality, that's how the devil's going to say things to you, right? So like, well, you say that you're clean, but I know what you did like five minutes ago. But you have to remember, it's not the things that we do, it's what Christ has accomplished inside of us. If you fall, get back up. Now, if that's just what you're doing, that's, that's, that's kind of part of who you are. If there is no growth, there is no change, then you have to think about that. But if you slip up, if you fall, that can be used to call it to you account because your, your righteousness, your victory is not based in the things that you do, but it's the things that he has done. And the scripture says that he got up and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The reason he sat down was because it was finished. If it wasn't finished, he would have stayed up and kept working. But it was done. 
In Romans 1.7, he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to ask you guys a question. Many of you who have been with me for a while are going to know the answer to this question. But I want right now, with a show of hands, how many people in this room are saints? To, for those of you whose hands are, are still down, how many people in this room are saved? Raise your hand. If you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If your hand is up, you are a saint. Being a saint is not some, there's not some set of rules that determine if you're a saint. The scripture says to all those in Rome who are loved by God, God and called to be saints. Paul's referring to the people, the, the Christians, the Roman Christians. He said, You guys are saints. And it's not the only time when Paul is referring to the Christians in Rome, he refers to them as loved by God and called to be saints. If you are saved, if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. You don't have to be ratified by another church. You don't have to go through a certain process. You don't have to perform any miracles. You just have to be called according to his name. You have to be a Christian. Received him is your Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul, referring to the church in Corinth, he still referred to them as saints. And if you recall, we just went through the book of of 1 Corinthians. That was a messed up church, guys. In a messed up city. Doing all kinds of dumb stuff. They looked a whole lot like Churches today, living in the United States, all kinds of dumb stuff going on, messing up, people messing around, and Paul still referred to them as saints. And you're like, Paul, I I read the book. I see what you're talking to them about. They don't look like saints to me. But we have to understand that being a saint is not based on our action. It's an identity. Just the same thing as you aren't a sinner because you sin. Some of you are going to be like, that's a newsflash. People are not called sinners because they sin. They're a sinner because they don't have Jesus Christ. Being a sinner is an identity just like being a saint is an identity. And sinners sin because they're sinners. They're not sinners because they sin. Does that make sense? The actions that they perform, they sin because their identity is a sinner without Jesus Christ. So they sin. That's who they are. And as Christians, we are saints. We have a different identity, and that should dictate our actions. Over 60 times in the New Testament, the word saint is used to refer to Christians, and not one of them refers to a special type of Christian that performs a a certain number of, uh, reaches a certain level of Christianhood before they can become a saint. The scripture over 60 times refers to Christians as saints because it is an identity. And like I said, you're not a saint because you're perfect. You're not a saint because you never sin. You're not a saint because you've never messed up. You're a saint because you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And as a result, because of who we are, we can finally live that righteous life, that sin-free life that, that, we, that God called us to live. If you wanted to live a sin-free life without Jesus, it's actually impossible in the book of Romans and and we'll actually go through this in much greater detail. I think here pretty soon we're going to start going through the, the book of Romans verse by verse. But one of the things that Paul says is that, that uh, he says, you know, there was a time when I agreed with the word of God and I knew what God, the, the law, I agreed with the law of God. I knew it was right, but I couldn't stop sinning because sin was inside of me. And most people read those scriptures. If you want to read that, he talks about the, the two natures. Um, in the book of Romans. Most people think of that, that's still happening inside of us as Christians, but, but Paul's talking about his pre-Christian and post-Christian life. 
He's saying, before I was a Christian, I wanted, I agreed with the law, I wanted the law, but I, I couldn't help it. I couldn't, I, I sinned. There was nothing that I could do because at that point, the problem hadn't been taken care of. They had the law which said, this is how you had to live, but there was no provision made inside their heart. They weren't, the, the problem, the root of the problem wasn't solved. So they, they may have wanted to do the right thing, but they were still living in sin. But now that we have Jesus, we can live without sin. One of my favorite scriptures, it is my favorite scripture, is Jude one twenty four, and it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless on that day. That It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I don't know about you guys, but that's an amazing promise to me. That means that I can live my life without sinning, that I can live my life without stumbling. And many people think that, oh no, you can't live without sin. I would say that the Word of God says you can. Now I also understand that most of us won't. But we can. If we would just keep our eyes on Him and have a revelation of who we actually are, and we begin to live that out in our lives. I don't even know where I'm at. None of that stuff was in my notes. <laughs> Hallelujah. Another, another, one of my, another one of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, To him is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have gone. Behold, new things have come. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. If anyone Is anybody confused about that? I mean, that sounds pretty clear. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You see, living right to attain righteousness, it's kind of like having a cup. Even worse, it's like, those of you got kids, have you ever found a cup in your kid's room? That, uh, like, there's stuff that I found in my kid's room. I'm like, I'm sure this has been here before the house was built. Like, I don't know how this is. And, and, and being, being righteous by doing the things, by performing, is kind of like taking that cup, putting it in a sink, and washing the outside, and then pouring a glass of milk in it without touching the inside. That's what being righteous by, by your works, by trying to attain it yourself is. We need to be cleaned on the inside. We need to be made brand new. Just because you make something look nice and clean doesn't make, mean it's new. I mean, any one of us, if I were to take my car right now and, and clean it up real nice, give it a fresh paint job and put it on, the, on Craigslist saying I have a brand new car for sale, you guys would all think I was crazy. Just because you clean something up and make it look nice doesn't mean it's brand new. There could be still wear on the engine. The suspension could be a mess. Just because you take a person and clean them up on the outside and make them look real nice doesn't mean that the inside has been taken care of. We need Jesus for that. You are not a refurbished piece of equipment, a piece of refurbished piece of furniture. If you have Jesus, you are brand new, straight from the factory. No history. Getting a hold of this is essential to living as a Christian. Because if you don't believe that you are different, if you don't have a revelation that, that you are brand new, how are you ever going to live that out if you think you are just who you used to be? And once you have a revelation of who you are, you'll begin to see in your life that it will flow out of you because we do what we are. We're not, we are not defined by what we do, but who we are defines what we do. In Ephesians 2, 4-7, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us 
in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we find out that we are loved and we have been made alive. You know, that's one of the things the enemy will try to tell you is that you are, that you are unloved. Worse still, he'll even try to tell you that you are unlovable. He'll try to tell you that you don't measure up. He'll point out your mistakes. He'll point out your failures. And he'll point out why that no one, especially God, can't love you. That's one of his tactics. But the truth is, is that the love that God has for us is an amazing, it's a great love. It's inexhaustible. It's inextinguishable. It can't, be, it can't run out. It can't be put out. And he has enough for every single one of us. And the reality is, is that he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when you were a mess, even before you were saved, even when you were doing all the dumb stuff that you're so worried that he's not going to love you for, he loved you and he sent his son to die for you, to pay the penalty for all that dumb stuff that you did. You see, God's love for us was never defined or dependent on the things that we did, our actions. Matter of fact, his love was always in spite of all of those things. The good news is is you can't do something dumb enough, evil enough, horrible enough, rude enough, any of those things that make God not love you. He's still going to love you. Now, he's not going to like all the dumb stuff that you did, but he's going to love you. And he thought that you were worth it to pay the penalty, to pay the price for all that dumb stuff that you did. He thought that you were worth it that he sent his son to pay that price so that you could be made brand new. The love of God for us has nothing to do with what we do, not our actions or accomplishments but in spite of what we do. Matter of fact, this is what it says in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This was people who were actually serving God. And he says that all of your good deeds were like polluted garments. Take some time in your spare time to, to do some research on what those, the word used there actually means. It's, come, it's actually a lot worse, comes across a lot worse than and we get it in our translations. But he's saying that your good deeds, no matter how good they were, no matter how righteous they were, without Jesus, they're worth nothing. Because your deeds can't save you. And his love is not based on our deeds. And some of us have a hard time figuring that out. And I think as you have children, it's a little bit easier to understand that. Because all of us with children have had our children do some dumb stuff. But it doesn't change our love for them. We don't love our kids because of the things that they do. When my kids do something dumb, I don't love them less. And when they do something great, I don't love them more. I love them because they're my kids, because I love them. And God looks at us the very same way. And because of his love, he's made us alive with him. This means that the old man, the the rotten man, the one who did all the crazy dumb stuff is dead and gone and you have a new person inside of you, a brand new spirit. You have been made brand new. And this new man, this new person that you are is no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And when you were a slave to sin, that means that sin dictated everything that you were doing. But when you're a slave to righteousness, that means righteousness dictates everything that you do. So when the enemy comes to tell you that you're just the same old person, you're not really who you say that you are, you're just putting on a facade, you can proclaim that, no, I've been made brand new and I'm alive in Jesus Christ. I'm not the same old dead man. I am something different. God has changed me. When he says that you are worthless, you can say, well, if I'm worthless, then why am I seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus? Sounds like you got the wrong information, devil. Being alive in Christ, being made 
knew is that that's how we see his immeasurable riches of his grace towards us. Now, the reality is, is none of us deserve that. That's where grace comes in. We didn't deserve to be made brand new. We didn't deserve to be forgiven. We didn't deserve any of that. But he did it because that he loved us. And because of that, we have victory and strength and holiness and peace and joy. And those things are ours in him. In Ephesians 1, through, uh, 1, 3 through 6, it says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The next thing that the enemy is going to tell you is that you're not actually clean. He's going to tell you that you are tainted. You might begin to think that you are going to have to somehow make up for your failures or your mistakes. Anybody ever felt like that before? I still feel like that sometimes. I have to fight that all. Every time I make a mistake, I begin to, to, begin to beat myself up. And, and, and you, know, you start feeling guilty and awful and And I have to remind myself that Jesus paid the price so that I don't have to feel like this, so I don't have to stay like this. And it's not to it's not to say that that we are 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 ignorant of those failures or that 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 they're nothing. I mean, obviously, we need to not live like that. We're to be holy. We're going to talk about that in a second. We're to live to be holy, but we're also not supposed to let that sin be the focus of our life. Instead of focusing on the sin when you fail, focus on the success of Jesus when you fail. If you mess up, instead of beating yourself up over the failure, begin to thank God that you're forgiven, that you're free, that you've been made brand new, that that sin that just uh, snuck into your life doesn't have control over you, that you are free from it. Begin to speak the word of God about yourself. Begin to speak what God says about you instead of making that sin, that failure, the focus of your life right now. Because the enemy is going to say, look what you just did. You're a failure. You're not clean. How can you be clean? But the, the, the Scripture says that, that He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He, he chose us to be holy and blameless. The enemy can say that you're dirty, but the truth is, is that you've already been set aside by God, that you are holy. And you were chosen in this before the foundation of the world. The only thing people keeping out of this, keeping people out of heaven and putting them in hell is, is not that, that they're doing stupid things. It's because they won't accept this predestination that God has chosen, that He wants them to be forgiven, that He wants them to be whole. If they would just say yes, they would be right there with us. Predestined is adoption to Himself as sons. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. And when I say we, I don't mean just us in this room. The truth is, is that God made provision for every single person that's ever lived on this earth. We, as in the human race, were chosen for, for, for adoption as sons. And some people are missing out because there's nothing more than the enemy wants to do than make you think that that's a lie. Then no, you weren't chosen. That no, you aren't good enough. But as a result who we are now should pour out of us. We should be looking different. In 1 Peter 1, 14-16, I don't have it up here, but it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What was our former ignorance? That, that we could be free of the lust, of the sin, the things that we were getting stuck inside of. How many times have you thought that you had to fix yourself? I spent my early Christian life before I had a real revelation of what salvation was all about. I spent every single night laying in bed, laying off my laundry list of sins. Forgive me for this, forgive me for this, forgive me for this. And then I'd get up the next day and do them all over again. Some of you have heard, and they all guys get a, a huge kick out of this, but this really happened to me. I used to smoke when I was in high school, and I remember thinking, I can't wait till I'm 18 because then at least it won't be illegal. That's one less sin on my list. Because I didn't understand what salvation was about. I thought it was about me having to perform to do good. And when I tried to do it on my own strength, I was a terrible Christian. I couldn't do it. I wanted to do it. But I didn't have a revelation of who I was, that I was actually made brand new. And the interesting thing is, once I finally had that revelation that I was, then, then, and I began to spend time in His Word and spend time in prayer and begin to read in His Word who I actually was, what, become, what was living out of me began to change. And stuff that I used to find uh, a fun, I, it would, something would come on TV, a show that I used to love, and I would be like, yeah, I, I don't really have an interest in watching this anymore. And it wasn't because I went, I can't watch this show because there's, there's cussing in it. I can't watch this show because I just realized that I don't really have an interest in this anymore. And it wasn't because I tried to change myself, but because I let the Word of God and His power begin to work inside of me, and I began to change because He made me brand new. You see, when we were just reading in, in, in uh, 1 Peter there, he says, but as he has called you holy, you are also to be holy in, in all your conduct. So he called us to be holy, and we are to be holy. But then he says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And on one hand, that's true. Because he is holy, we're required to be holy. But I also believe that there is the connotation. He says, he says, because I am holy, you are holy. It's not a command so much as a reality. Because he is holy, we are holy because He made us brand new. It's His Spirit that lives inside of you. And the reality is, is if you're confused and you're thinking, well, how can I possibly be holy? The greatest proof that you are holy is that the Spirit of God lives inside of you because the Scripture says there can be no fellowship of darkness and of light. And if you weren't holy, the Spirit of God could not live inside of you. But He has made you holy, so He does. And our holiness is not defined by our actions. But the reality is, is our actions should be defined by our holiness. I'm going to have to jump ahead a little bit. We're going to run out of time. In Romans 8.37, it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. If you read a little bit ahead, it says, who sh in, in verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, or tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Those are in all those things that we are more than conqueror. And not only are we conquerors, but we're more than conquerors. That means you're not, you didn't just scrape by. You're well over the top. More than conquerors. And when the enemy points out your weakness, remind him, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not weak. I am more than a conqueror. The enemy wants you to fail, and he'll tell you whatever you need to hear to make you fail, and he'll continue to tell you that you are a failure. But in, in Christ, you have already conquered everything that he says that you're failing at. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50, 56 through 57, it says, The sting of death is sin, 
and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is kind of a powerful motivational tool. And it's the ultimate payment for sin, right? The wages of sin is death. And it's a, it's a motivational tool, but for the believer, death is not the end. The truth is, even for the unbeliever, death is not the end. There is an eternal death, an eternal torment. But when you take away that sting of death, the sin begins to lose its power over you. We had Dean Braxton in here some time ago, and, and he's got an incredible testimony. He, he, he died, uh, he was dead for an hour and 45 minutes. He went to heaven, he came back, and one of the things he said in his testimony was that when he was in heaven, everything was just right. You know, when the worst thing that you can do is die and go and be with Jesus, it's kind of not really that big of a deal. It's going to suck for your family who are going to miss you, but if they're saved, they'll see you soon enough. He says it was just right. Paul even said that he was looking forward to going and being with the Lord. He said to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Matter of fact, he said, on one hand, I would like to go be with Jesus, but on the other hand, I recognize that I have a responsibility to stay here and minister to people that need to hear about Jesus. But I want you to know, church, death has been dealt with. That sting of death has been dealt with. We've been given victory over sin and death. We've been given victory, not defeat. We're not stuck. We need to live in that reality, the reality of being victorious, the reality of uh, the thing that I want us all to get through our head today is that we don't, we're not what we do, but we do what we are. And we'll end here, we'll end here in verse uh, Romans 8, 33 through 34. It says, who shall bring any charge against God elect? Is it God? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. One of the things I said is the enemy is going to come before you and challenge who you are. He's going to bring charges against you. He's going to say, no, you're not, you're not forgiven. You're not free. You're not actually clean. I, I just saw what you looked up on the internet. It's obvious that you're not clean. But you can say, listen, I'm victorious over this stuff. I may have slipped up, but I'm going to get back up. The scripture says the righteous man falls and gets back up seven times. Fall seven times, gets back up seven times. That doesn't mean on the eighth time you're screwed. It means that you just keep getting back up. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The enemy doesn't have the right to bring a charge against you. Your family members don't have a right. Your friends don't have a right. Nobody has a right to bring a charge against you because you are God's elect. And it's not the things that you do, but it was God who justified you. Now I would encourage you, church, that's a reality. If you have been born again, if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been made brand new, not based on the things that you've done, but based on what has been accomplished inside of you at that moment. The enemy can't bring a charge against you because, just in case you didn't know, God's a whole lot more powerful than he is. And he can't, you know, that's one of the things in our lives, and we have a lot of great movies talking about the last battle. Not really a battle, just so you know. God wins. Matter of fact, you can, you can read the, the last book in the Bible. It's not really a battle. The devil has been defeated. All he wants to do is bring people with him. That's his only option. He knows he's been defeated, but he wants to bring as many people with him as he can. Stand against him. Stand on who you are. If you're not sure who you are, if some of the stuff that I've said today, you're like, 
You've never even seen that before. Spend some time in the Word of God. You'll begin to learn who you are by reading His Word. You don't know where to read? Start in the book of, of John and read through the book of Jude. Don't read Revelation. Don't read the first three books of the New Testament. Just read those books ten times in a row before you read anything else. And you'll begin to learn who you are. You're going to read in, in the book of John about God's love. You're going to read about the early church. And then you're going to begin to read about uh, Paul and Peter's letters to the, uh, James's letter to the churches. And you're going to see who you are in Christ. And when you begin to have a revelation of who you are in Christ, you're going to see that there's a change in how you live your life. Because we do what we are. In church, you are forgiven. You are free. You're brand new. You're righteous. And you're holy. So let's start living like it. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.